Hey there, fellow fabricators, stone shop owners from across the Fruited Plain, Aaron Crowley with the Fab Lab Podcast, coming to you today after having missed a week with a one-of-a-kind, first-of-its-kind episode. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I don't have an outline. I don't have bullet points. I don't have the traditional preparation that I usually have for a podcast. I don't even have a title for this, but I do have a very specific idea and a very specific purpose for sharing with you what I'm going to share today. Now, first thing I want to do is take care of some business. Last week just was so busy. Had to leave for a trip on Saturday, and by the time my work piled up by Thursday, I just simply could not get an episode outlined. I kept going back and forth. I had an idea. I started to kind of scratch out the the beginning of uh, of, a, of a bullet point so that I could share that, and it just wasn't working. It just was not coming together, and that does not happen. Very, it's extremely rare. Here it is, episode one hundred and fifty nine. And I can tell you that has not happened very many times and just the pressure of getting ready to leave for this trip and I just I couldn't pull it off. So that I guess explains why there was a missing episode last week. But this week, it's going to be you know very unconventional in the sense that, like I said, not that I'm not prepared, but that I don't have the traditional ordered thought. A lot of times I'll spend probably as much, you know, anywhere from a half an hour to an hour preparing, just thinking through. I scratch it out. I outline it. I refine it. I've got my intro, my transition. I've got my three points. I'll throw in a word from a sponsor and then the conclusion. In this episode, totally unscripted. I don't have anything in front of me. I don't even have the title. But I have an idea and I have a purpose for why I'm sharing this with you today. I've been on a theme. The last two episodes, 157, 158, we're talking about why the industry is so hard and some things that can be done to make it less hard. Well, in this episode, I'm going to share with you an unconventional idea that I believed would transform the experience of a stone shop owner. In fact, I was about a, I don't know, 30 yards down the uh, the field, if you will, before I got the offer on my business, I was very seriously considering making a concerted effort to explore this. I had done pretty extensive mo- financial modeling, taking the assumptions I'm going to share with you today. I had done some very extensive modeling, forecasting, trying to extrapolate out, trying to, to test my assumptions against at least some math based on what I knew. I knew the numbers. And to speculate... I had already begun actually talking to other fabricators, and that'll make more sense as I get into this, asking some questions very quietly. I was not not divulging my purpose for this, but I was beginning to ask some questions to kind of test the market to see what was possible, what was capable. And the, the whole purpose of that was to essentially retain what I consider to be the best parts of my stone fabrication business and jettisoning what I consider the, the, the parts of it that made it so difficult. And by segregating it, by separating those two things, I thought I could get the best of both worlds. I could isolate what really worked and then do that really well on a smaller scale, eliminate all the, the, the headache that required all the overhead and all the additional sales and all the additional management and created all the additional variables that I had to contend with. So that was kind of the basic idea. And I'm going to get into the specifics of that. And so my purpose in sharing that with you today isn't that I'm suggesting you should adopt this, but what I am suggesting is that by thinking 
outside the box, by thinking in an unconventional manner, by not just simply tolerating or accepting the fact that this business is really, really hard and just working harder longer, but giving yourself the freedom to think outside the box and not be constrained, not be imprisoned by the way the industry is set up, by the conventional wisdom or the way the average stone shop is arranged. And so if you've read the book or heard of the book, Blue Ocean Strategy, that probably is really at the root of this. I read that book 10, 15 years ago. And I've never really forgotten the lesson of that. And they basically say most industries mature and they become very competitive. They become commoditized. And then it becomes ruthlessly competitive because all of the the excess is stripped out of it because it's so competitive. And you have what's called a red ocean because everybody is <laughs> – it's so cutthroat. Everybody's cutting each other's throats. And really, everybody's cutting their own throats by slashing prices to get the business to try and continue to make money. And it just puts all this downward pressure and everything just gets super uh, minimalist, if you will. And that creates a red ocean. Well, the authors of that book, who I, uh, I, do I have that on my bookshelf here? I think I do. It may be in a box. I mean, that one may not have made its way onto the hallowed uh, real estate of my bookshelf here in the office. Only the best of the best of the best books are there. Like less chaos, more cash, like the E-Myth revisited. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The Toyota Way, Phil Knight's Shoe Dog, books like that. You know, those are those are at the top of the list. Anyway, I digress. Blue Ocean Strategy was to basically take that unconventional approach, sidestep the red ocean, and find yourself all alone in a part of the ocean that hasn't been turned red by the blood of a cutthroat business model or environment. And so what this is, it isn't necessarily changing the market approach. It's just completely changing the way, leveraging what you already have, maximizing what you've already built, stripping away what makes it really difficult, leaving you with the best of the best. And so, again, I'm not suggesting you should do this. I'm just sharing with you an idea that I think has tremendous merit, tremendous value, tremendous potential, quite frankly. I should probably copyright this. Someone will probably copy this and go out there and 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 create a franchise or something around this. That's okay. I'm open-handed. That's that's how I've been about everything I've ever done in my business. I have never I have never held back anything on the Fab Lab podcast if I thought it would help another fabricator improve their business. So in the spirit of being creative, unconventional, thinking outside the box, looking for a blue ocean in the red ocean of the stone industry, I'm going to share with you. I'm going to riff on an idea that I think has tremendous potential. So here's the idea. It's not super complicated, but I'll set the stage by just briefly describing (laughs) what we all know to be the the reality of a stone shop. You got to go get clients. You either get contractors, you either get builders, remodelers, flooring stores, big box stores, some kind of a broker who then sells that to the retail public. Perhaps you do some commercial work or you have a division of your business that does work directly with the retail homeowner. The retail homeowners are great because they're high margin, but the problem is you got to go get a new homeowner every day or every time because they're not, I mean, you get referrals, they'll write a review, you can leverage that, but it's passive referral. It's not direct. It's not repeat. Your contractor business, and I would isolate that down, I'd strip away the flooring stores, I'd strip away the big box stores, I'd strip away the super price conscious, and I would identify 
how it isolate the remodeling contractors, the high-end builders who did bring me repeat business. It was a business-to-business relationship that continued for years. And I had contractors and, and remodeling contractors, um, remodeling companies and cabinet shops that we did work for for 15, 20 years. Th- those relationships were so strong. They were so developed. They, they, were, they had become personal relationships in many cases. And that work was always there always there it was predictable it was high margin they valued what we did and 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 we valued them tremendously and so my idea was in this age of digital manufacturing where our industry has advanced so far when it comes to digital measuring and then digital manufacturing cnc five axis saws cnc milling laser tool adjustments and modifications to get that precision and then the polishing, here was my idea. Your traditional stone shop has that client base. They go out and template. They have a shop which requires a lease, which requires building, which requires real estate, which requires equipment, has a cost associated with it. So you have to generate a certain amount of revenue just to cover the overhead. So as your revenue increases, your headcount increases. <laughs> so your management increases the, the what you have to manage the alligator gets bigger that has you know that you have to feed every month because of all that overhead because of the sales you have to maintain the expectation and the high wire act of maintaining those sales it just be, it just becomes larger and quite frankly it's a little more stressful the larger it gets the higher that wire is above the net the riskier it is and the stakes are higher and so in addition to manufacturing it out of that plant where you have all of your capital investment, the machines, water reclamation, the overhead cranes, everything that goes into getting a building like that ready, you all know that, then you've got to install and service the countertops that have been manufactured in that plant after they've been templated, after they've been sold. So that's your traditional fab shop model. Starts off very small and it just grows. It, it evolves into that. And as I would step back and I would look and I would I would I would try and understand how I, I basically have the business I've built. I tried to solve my problems by growing it. You've heard me talk about the momentum of success as it gets bigger. You think that, hey, if we can just get a little bit bigger, it'll buy me some margin to make things easier and make things better and make things more profitable. And so it grows inevitably. So my business had reached a point of doing, I don't know, two and a half, three million dollars in sales, around 20 employees. We had a 12,000 square foot building, a bunch of equipment in there, a couple of install crews, and it was a pretty big beast that had to be fed and you could not stop. And when I looked at the business, probably a good, I would say 30 to 40% of our business was that high-end, repeat, remodel and cabinet shop contractor business that just was there. We didn't have to advertise for it. All we had to do was do a good job. All we had to do was show up on time like we always did anyway. And that work had been there forever and would have likely have been there forever. But then I looked at the retail side of the business which was our bread and butter, which was the 60% of the work that we did, the amount of work and money and effort we had to put into that to generate that retail sales. When you combine those two things, that was this basically what we had. So the idea, I was starting to question, does this make sense? We're in a really competitive market. We got to generate two and a half to $3 million a year in sales. 
That's a marathon. That's like being on a treadmill. You can never stop, especially with those, re, you know, the, the retail customers. You got to go find new retail customers every month because they're not coming back every month. They may tell their friends about you occasionally, but it's not predictable. It's not sustainable. But the remodeling contractor, the high-end cabinet shop contractor work was repetitive. It was repeat and it was consistent. And it was relatively high margin when you consider what we charged and when you consider the cost to acquire those sales was virtually non-existent. There was no cost. We didn't advertise for it because we already had them as clients. All we had to do was do a good job and that work just kept coming back. So here was my idea in this age of digital fabrication. And we were a digital shop, 100%. (coughs) Excuse me. We used a ProLiner to do all of our digital templates. We had a Sasso 5-axis saw with the slab smith. We integrated. We took pictures, photographed, did the digital layout with every client before we cut it. Went to our Northwood CNC where we milled everything. And then we polished it and then we went and installed it. My thought was, it's it's really interesting. I look around. I got 100 competitors in Portland. And there's probably... 35 of them have the exact same duplicate shop as I did. And yet none of us were running around the clock. And so my first inkling was there's all this unutilized capacity. Let's just say there's 29 other shops in Portland that have a slabsmith, a five axis saw and a CNC with measurable tolerances Milling wheels that, you know, are, are, are adjusted based on a computer and on a laser. Is it not to the point where I could provide that other guy that has a shop that isn't running, you know, two shifts a day? Couldn't I just send him my digital files and have him make the countertops? I mean, not to say that our shop wasn't good at doing what it did. It really was. But that digital evolution made it less unique because it's it's now it's math now it's programming as opposed to that skilled trade or that craftsmanship and so i begin to ask this question how would the business change if i could find another company that had that digital setup that could take my digital template files and produce a countertop what would that do to my business model if all of a sudden i didn't have a lease all of a sudden, I didn't have to generate that extra 60%, and I'm not using that just to correlate to the retail sales. I'm just using that as a, as, a, as a comparative figure in terms of the reduction of how big the monster is or the alligator is that would have to be fed every month. If I didn't have to have the cost of all my capital equipment, the utilities, the, the rent or the, the mortgage on the building, all the staff in that building to make the countertops, What if, and that's what this is, fellow fabricator, I am simply sharing with you a big, gigantic what if exercise that I think has value. And if the idea in itself doesn't have value, the the practice of thinking outside the box and thinking unconventionally and looking for a blue ocean, looking for a better way, a different way to make more money with less work and less risk is absolutely worth our time to consider. So that's the what if. The what if was I could eliminate all my advertising expense, which was significant because we were generating so much retail sales. I could eliminate my mortgage and eliminate the labor in the shop. Assuming I could get my counters fabricated at the going rate, the per square foot rate for fabrication, if I simply did away with 60% of the volume, retained the 40%, 30 to 40%, which was that 
high-end, repetitive, repeat business with those remodel contractors, that business-to-business business model with those companies that I had relationships with, that repetitive work that was going to come in one way or the other. What if I stripped all of my overhead? And all the overhead really is in the shop. If you look at an electrical supply or an electrician business or a plumbing business, they don't have a manufacturing facility. They have guys in vans that show up to the job site, do the work. They swing by the wholesale house to buy the parts or the fittings or the piping or the wiring or whatever it is. And they go to the job site. And a lot of those guys drive their trucks home. So you don't even have to have a, a parking lot to store those rigs in. It's a very, very efficient, high margin business model. And so I was beginning to contemplate, how could I do the same thing? Instead of going and starting a whole new business, what if I did the unthinkable and I shrunk the business, I eliminated, sold the building, sold the equipment. Obviously, that would mean the reduction in staff, which I I don't mean to speak too callously about that. Again, I'm just talking about an idea. I was thinking through the math of this new approach to the business model where all I did is retain my clients, my template, and my install capacity. I could shrink the headcount by probably two-thirds. Now, when you think about shrinking the headcount by two-thirds, my management cost shrinks by probably more than two-thirds because I just simply don't have as many staff members to manage. I don't need as many managers. So when I started looking at that, I was I was realizing how much cost could be stripped out of the business model, assuming I could get my countertops manufactured by a higher volume digital shop at a fixed square foot price. I could fix my cost. It was unbelievable. And when I presented that sort of concept to my business coach, he he was like, this is the best idea you've had in your business in five years. Aaron, this is interesting. This is worth pursuing. And as we were beginning to kind of determine how do we test this, I had started talking to other fab shops that were digital companies that had all the digital infrastructure in place, that had a square foot pricing that was workable for this model. And I was beginning to get feedback from, hey, what would that look like? How about turnaround times? How about tolerances? How do we, you know, how do I measure your work to my templates or my digital files? I mean, I was having conversations at that level. And then I got an offer on the business from somebody to buy the business. And I never had the opportunity to actually pursue it. And I don't know that I ever would have gone, you know, full stop all the way to where I had, I had fully explored that. But I was so, shocked by how compelling the numbers were and it really made sense when you think about this you you take the electrician example they don't have a manufacturing plant number one the in and of itself is a huge 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 challenge to do well on its best day not you and that's just if you strip away the fact that you have to template those counters and then go install them and then service them as well just taking the making of the countertop it's a challenge there's so many variables like i talked about a couple episodes ago a lot of variables there. When you look at a home builder, for example, could a home builder, a, a could a large home building company figure out how to do foundations, figure out how to do framing, figure out how to do electrical, plumbing, and HVAC, 
citing. Of course they could. It's possible that they could do everything, and some small contractors do do everything. But there is a reason why subcontractors specialize, and there is a reason why the contractor sees the value in hiring specialists in each one of those fields and then just simply managing it. That's actually a more profitable way at, at a smaller scale to make money building homes. And in the same way, the plumber makes a lot more money by specializing in their craft. Could they go GC a project? Of course they could. But that would be outside their wheelhouse and that wouldn't be maximizing their skills and their expertise. And so when I started thinking about this, you look at the discipline of templating effectively and installing. Those are unique. They're related. And they're both a challenge. And then you look at the, the complete you know, opposite of that, which is running a manufacturing plant with a lot of cost, a lot of capital necessary, and a lot of management necessary to get those countertops coming out of there consistently in a manner that they can be installed you know, consistently. What if fabricators started to specialize and the companies that were really, really, really effective at the digital manufacturing phase, but who were still retaining the, the sales and the templating and the installing, what if those companies, by choice, voluntarily began to specialize, gravitate towards their strengths? And I used to think, too, it, it would be so much simpler if I could do one or the other. If I could just focus on making countertops, maybe I'll be the guy that just makes the countertops in my shop for the other companies that are bringing me digital files and then going and installing the countertops after I have manufactured them. Or, as I was thinking about doing, I sell the building, sell the equipment, shrink the overhead, retain my best clients, and I just simply general contract, if you will, I schedule my major up technician to go to the job site. We email the digital files to the subcontract fabricator who is digitally, you know, arranged. We do the layout or they do the layout with the client. They make the countertop and then my install crew goes, picks the countertops up after they have confirmed that they meet the dimensions and the files and we go install them. And we would create that specialization between the two disciplines maximizing. And so I wouldn't have to go out and get new sales. I wouldn't have to go out and get more sales. I could actually get by on about a third of the sales I had been operating on, which would dramatically reduce the size of the beast or the monster or the alligator that had to be fed every month, which carries with its its own level of stress, having to maintain that volume of sales, could relax the amount of sales rely on those highly valued repetitive contractor clients, defer the work on a per square foot subcontract basis to a digital shop who could make those countertops predictably and just leverage what worked. And then basically, just like a, a contractor does, they sell the house at a certain price and the spread between the cost of the subs and the sales price is what they make. They make their money managing the subs. And from this perspective, I would make the money on the spread between my cost to install, what I'm charging the customer at the maximum price I can get, and the much, much, much lower cost on a square foot basis from a company that already has that capital outlaid in their manufacturing facility, already has the lease, and has unutilized capacity. So it would make more sense for them to get, as they do more countertops through that fixed 
overhead through that manufacturing facility, their actual cost to produce goes down because the revenue they are making off of my subcontract square foot price to manufacture the countertops actually lowers their overhead, contributes to their overhead. And in my mind, that was a brilliant, genius business model that I was actually seriously considering exploring on a, on a serious basis. And we were probably to the point of going, let's just test this. Let's go template a job. Let's turn it over to one of these companies, let them fabricate it, and let's go install it and see how it works. And so, fellow fabricator, that's an idea I wanted. Again, I am not suggesting that's what you should do. There are all kinds of other challenges and and hurdles that would have to be overcome. What happens when a countertop is, you know, miscut? When you own your own shop, you can come back that night, work a long overtime shift, and be back the next day with a new countertop. If it's somebody else's shop, you don't have that luxury. You don't have that latitude. Oh my gosh, this backsplash was a quarter of an inch too tall. Can I just bring it back to the shop and you guys throw it up on the saw to rip it down? Well, if it's your own shop, yeah, you absolutely can. If it's somebody else's shop who has their own schedule, no, you can't. So there are clearly limitations to that business model. And again, I'm not here to suggest that that is the best business model. I'm not here to suggest it's perfect or that it's even workable. I never tested it. I simply share it with you. In the spirit of thinking outside the box, of approaching your business, and one of the reasons I'm sharing this idea with you in this episode 159, we'll call this a riff on an idea to make fabricating less hard. I think that's what I'll call this. (laughs) We'll make that the title. The next episode I'm going to share with you is going to be even more unconventional. It's going to be even more perhaps eye-popping, but I do have personal experience in the idea I'm going to share with you in episode 160. So I'm just kind of setting the stage, helping you get comfortable, fellow fabricator, thinking outside the box. What can you do differently? What can you do I'm not even going to say better because better suggests just doing what you're already doing either faster or more efficiently or at a less, you know, lower cost or 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 more refined. What can you do differently that enhances the profitability of your stone shop and doing that while requiring less work of you, giving you more freedom, more life, more enjoyment at work, more life outside of work? So that's the idea here. How do we make our businesses better? In this episode, how do we make our businesses different so that we can accomplish that outcome. So fellow fabricator, I'm so glad that you tuned into this episode. You know, I almost forgot to mention a word from our sponsor. Since the Fab Lab podcast is a labor of love for me, the one benefit by not, I guess, charging for the Fab Lab podcast, I guess that's possible. There's Patreon. Um, Maybe I'll think about doing that sometime. But until then, one of the ways that allows me to continue to do this podcast is because of the latitude I have with my relationship with no lift that business affords me some time so as that business continues to be successful it affords me the time to invest in the fab lab podcast so if you don't have a no lift talk about unconventional no lift install system is sold about 1700 systems and they speculate that there's about 2000 install crews i'm sorry 20000 install crews in the industry so by no means is Installing with a mechanical device that mechanically lifts and rotates the countertops into the horizontal position to alleviate the strain on your installers while also reducing the likelihood of breakage and reducing the need for extra shop labor to go into the field, that is not conventional. That is really unconventional. 
No Lift is attempting to change that, to reverse that, to where it becomes the norm, where the entire industry understands and believes that there is no good gained, nothing gained by expecting human beings, men typically, to pick up and carry a million pounds a year in the interest of putting those countertops in when there is an alternative that makes it faster, more cost-effective, less expensive, and better for the installer. So, fellow fabricator, do the unconventional thing. If you don't have a no-lift, visit noliftsystem.com. Check out the fantastic products that they got, the accessories that they have now for making, installing faster, easier, better for your installers. So visit noliftsystem.com. Fellow fabricator, I'm so glad you tuned in to this episode 159. What what did I call it? A riff (laughs) on an unconventional idea that makes fabricating less hard. I think that was the title. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you'll tune in next week for an even more unconventional approach, but perhaps far more realistic and far more doable for you, fellow fabricator. Until then, happy fabricating.